Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to continue our look through the Nicene Creed, and we are going to touch on the topic of the Father. So, last time we did I believe in one God, and now we enter into the next couple words, which is the Father. So, so far we have I believe in one God, the Father. And I'll admit right out the gate that breaking up this next couple of lines has been kind of hard. We may end up putting together the almighty creator of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible because they're all related to each other. But here we're talking about the father um, by itself. And so this will follow the historical discussion and then it will go into the biblical support and then we will talk about applications. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right into the historical discussion. Let me make sure that this is muted. Okay, so Gerald Bray um, begins his own discussion on this particular section by saying, quote, If faith in one God is part of the Christian church's Jewish inheritance, then confessing him as father probably ought to be regarded as a specifically Christian contribution to that belief. It is not that Jews were totally unacquainted with the notion that God is a father to his people, and the concept of divine fatherhood was quite acceptable in Hellenistic circles, where the father and creator were used often interchangeably. Um, Bray further notes that it is specifically Christian because for the Christians, God was first and foremost the father of the son, Jesus Christ. And it is in that perspective that we must interpret the meaning of the term father. Now, while... Um, there is indeed this context of the term um, of the Father and Jesus as the Son. The existence of the broader usage of God the Father is also present, um, but much less frequent. Um, it's particularly discussed that um, for pagans, God as Father was not a big um, leap. Um, I mean, even if you look at uh, the quite removed from the historical setting of the New Testament, but with Norse mythology, for example, um, Odin is the all father. Um, he's kind of the father of the gods. And so that for pagans, even in, you know, Roman Greco polytheism was not too, um, far from their own system. So in some sense, God as father could appeal to them, um, which is worth notice, uh, noting for historical uh, circumstances. Um, so that wasn't a stretch for them. But um, when it comes to the historical understanding um, of the Nicene Creed, the church spent a good amount of time and effort discussing the relationship between the Father and the Son uh, because it denotes an equality of nature, uh, which can be noted how the Jews treated Jesus for claiming God as his Father, um, so they were dealing with this equality of nature, but distinction in persons that we've been talking about in our historical survey. And so as we discussed also in the discussion on monotheism, the historical setting, uh, found itself dealing with monotheism yet with two distinct persons in this case, the, the relationship between the father and the son who have this equality of nature. Whenever we look at the histories in the historical context that arose during the early church, uh, this distinction in the creed 
sets up a clear refutation of Sabellianism and uh, Arianism. Now, remembering Sabellianism or modalism, um, it taught that there is one God who is the sole source or monarch of all that exists while the Son and the Holy Spirit are different ways or modes in which the Father appears to his revelation. Um, so emphasis were uh, placed on texts such as uh, I and the Father are one. Um, but modalism back then, um, and even today, uh, it will be our application point, proved easy to refute um, because of how incoherent it made divine revelation. Uh, the idea that the Father became the Son and the Son became the Spirit, and it's all one God who just exists in different modes, um, becomes a problem when you're reading the text. Um, so regardless, the formation of modalism led the early Christians to be more careful in how they articulated the distinction of the three persons in the Trinity, while also addressing the divine unity or monarchy of the Trinity. And we've discussed that a little bit in the historical settings. Um, but God is one in being, substance, or nature. Uh, those can be used interchangeably. And each person of the Trinity can have all aspects of deity applied to them equally without distinction. Uh, what can be said of the divine nature can be applied to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But whenever you look at the level of personhood, um, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they all have unique properties to distinguish themselves from one another. Um, a great example that we'll discuss later on is whenever it comes to generation and procession. So the Father is ungenerate and he doesn't proceed. He is the origin of the Son and the Spirit, and only the Son is generate and only the spirit is spirated or proceeds from the father. Um, and so those eternal properties of personhood are real eternal distinctions. The father is eternally the father and the son is eternally the son and the Holy Spirit is eternally the son relating to one another and sharing in the one divine essence while mutually indwelling one another. And that becomes really hard for us to comprehend. And whenever it comes to generation, we're going to flesh out generation more later in fact, even in this particular episode, we'll talk about one of the analogies that was used by the early church to describe generation or the idea of the Father being the origin of the Son and Holy Spirit, because there are questions that come to mind about that, which um, I think I spoke to that a little bit about the aseity of the Son and um, the doctrine put forward by the individual named origin, uh, which I didn't realize that would become problematic because those two terms without seeing the spelling can become what what is he talking about origin as in beginning or is he talking about origin as in the person anyway um for christians um father was a term used not in imitation of jesus but rather in union with him and this really has to do with the fundamental nature of the son sharing the fundamental nature of the father right the divine nature um and so gerald bray's articulation of this point it's helpful. He says, quote, in other words, God is our father, not because we are divine, but because we have been united to him in the son, Jesus Christ. What Jesus is by eternal right and by nature, we have become by grace and adoption, end quote. Um, this, this connection between the incarnation, union with Christ, sharing the divine nature and our relationship as sons of God um, is often missed, Right. We don't become ontologically gods, but we do get to have theosis, a deification that makes us like God by our adoption 
as children of God and by our sharing in incorruptibility and our incorruption and um, our sharing in glorification with the Son. And so that's all by union with the Son. Um, because we are united with the Son, Jesus Christ, Second Peter says that we get to partake in the divine nature. And so Athanasius points out, uh, according to the Scriptures, we participate in the life of the Trinity, and we have fellowship with the triune God uh, via our union with Christ in, our, in the application of the helper of the Holy Spirit. Um, Bray summarizes again, quote, outside of the Trinitarian context, the designation of God as Father loses its relational dimension. We become actual sons of God by our union with Christ, who was the eternal Son of God. Um, not only that, but we are being conformed to Christ's image, right? Um, so this relational dimension of Father, Son, Sons um, is not only in regards to that soteriology, right, the salvation of man, but in regards to the eternal relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That relationship is eternal. And as soon as you start saying things like modalism, you're breaking apart the fundamental nature of God, especially when it comes to God is love in that relational aspect. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit in our application section. Um, so worth noting here that this theosis or deification that we're speaking of, uh, which we spoke of whenever we were talking about, uh, I believe, Athanasius um, in our Arian Controversy in Athanasius episode, is not something like little God theology of our word of faith movements today. Uh, and it's not like um, what you see with Mormonism, where we, we become weird mediaries who can go create planets and things of that nature. But there's this real aspect where God, the Son, took on flesh so that we may take on divinity, incorruptibility, immortality. But most importantly for this context, so that we may take on the claim of God as Father. Because by the Spirit, we can now say, Abba, Father, right? And we'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. So the distinction in the creed um, between the three persons, uh, because you see the creed lined up as um, we believe in one God, uh, the Father, and then one Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit. So there's that distinction of the persons in the creed. And this not only rejects modalism, but it rejects Arianism. Um, Arianism is more fully dealt with in the discussion on the Son, but to speak of one person of the Trinity is to affect the entire Godhead. And so this clause also affects that because for Arians, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were not co-eternal with the Father, right? They, didn't eter they weren't eternally existing like the Father was. And only the Father was truly God in the absolute sense of the word. Um, and you still see that notion too uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses or who are modern Arians. They'll say that only God the Father is Almighty God, and Jesus is a lesser God. Um, and it wouldn't be until like the 5th century when um, people in church history start applying Almighty God to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Almighty Son, Almighty Spirit. But theologically, we can say that was a biblical um, application of Almighty God uh, whenever we look at how they speak about the Son and Spirit. Um, but if we're talking historical context, that wasn't used quite yet. That's a little bit of a sidebar. Um, but for um, the Arians, we found the Christians stressing against the Arians that humans have the same substance and nature as their father. We are humans by nature. Uh, and so Jesus, as the eternal son, also had the same substance and nature as his father and as the divine nature. Um, but um, this could lead to a form of subordinationism, which we also discussed in our historical discussions. Um, 
and analogies can always break down and go too far. But the point was is that we are modeled after God, and God's eternal relation is a relational being of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so typically I think that this could be solved if we don't think backwards. If we don't start with, um, I'm a father and I have a son, um, and human relationship, and if I apply that to God, then it becomes a problem. Because how did I have a son? I had a son through myself and my wife, through relations, external means, um, right, um, passions. But, and so if we apply that to God, it becomes problematic. But if we work backwards and we say, well, God is eternally in relation with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are creating his image where we're relational beings who beget children in our own image, as we see like in the creation account with Adam begetting his own children in his own likeness or image, then it makes more sense because he is still above and beyond us in understanding. Um, and so we can't apply our finite understanding to the eternal relationship of the triune God. And hopefully that made sense. Um, but that's how I reason through it is basically we begin with theology proper, who God is, and then we work down to the human perspective instead of working backwards. But ultimately we are relational beings because God is a relational being. Um, and that's where the concept of God is love uh, becomes a problem in modalism because God um, does not have that relational aspect that love requires. Um, so let's let's find my notes here. So the Christians stress that humans have the same substance and nature as their father, as Jesus had the same nature as his father. Um, but there also needs to be a recognition here um, that there's a tension, right? Uh, the divine nature does not become broken into portions or parts of the substance you know, provided to the Son or the Holy Spirit via generation or procession that we mentioned before. And like I said, we'll discuss those later on, so try not to get too hung up on those right now. Um, but they're necessary to mention because we're talking about the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit briefly. Um, so Nicaea didn't, Nicaea didn't resolve this particular tension about God not being broken up into portions or parts, but instead it would be later on um, at the Council of Chalcedon where you'd find, find this kind of dealt with. And to kind of summarize where that went, uh, Chalcedon articulated the doctrine of Christ and the symbol of Chalcedon um, as the divine son who takes upon himself a human nature. And this solved the issue um, by defining person, uh, nature. And um, to quote Bray again for simplicity, he says, once it was accepted that the son of God possessed his divine nature, but was not bound to it to the extent that he could not acquire second nature alongside it. It became possible to see the Trinity in this way as a fellowship of persons who possess a common nature rather than a substance somehow divided up into three parts. The patristic era pro provided the theological concepts that would be needed in order to elaborate this transformation of our perception of God, but it would be many centuries before it would come to fruition. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, I imagine, um, and that has to deal with how personhood is understood as more articulated during Chalcedon, but we're trying to stick within the parameters of Nicaea, so that's that. Now, we can wrap up our historical discussion by backtracking to Athanasius, who came, of course, before 381. Um, and Athanasius points out against the Arians that if the Son did not exist eternally, then there was a time when the Father was not the Father. This has been one of the most pivotal concepts for me as I was growing um, because it's so simple and it makes a lot of sense. So in essence, God the Father, as a Father, would be imperfect um, and his existence as a Father, or 
the reality of God the Father would be an, an imperfect reality if God was to turn into a father later on by adding to himself a son in time. So basically, if the perfect, immutable God had to become a father to be uh, to have this reality of God as father, then he was imperfectly father prior. The reality of him as father was not present. Um, and so God has changed from non-father to father, so to speak, if that makes sense. And so basically, um, this idea of father being an imperfect reality or imperfect existence of God as father uh, became crucial um, because that would mean that God added to himself a son later on in time and then became a father. So Athanasius focuses predominantly on the son, right? That's his his focus. Um, and that's our focus most of the time anyway because father is usually presupposed by most individuals. But he stresses that an eternal father demands an eternal son. He is eternally father and he is eternally son. Um, so, and against the Arians, Athanasius says, was he who is light without radiance? God is eternally. Then, since the father always is, his brightness exists eternally. Um, and this is really um, stressed and an analogy that was used by many um, in the early church and even today. Um, but he notes, Athanasius notes that just as the sun is inseparable from its rays, because to be the sun is to shed light, so the father is a father and possesses a son by necessity. Um, the son and the spirit find their origin in the father who is unoriginate, and yet the origin of the son and the spirit is eternal and timeless without beginning or end. So the, the origin of the son and spirit is the father, but it's without time and it's eternal. And so this analogy of the son is what's continued on uh, to this day. And that's, um, can you imagine the sun as existing apart from the light rays that it constantly emits? Um, the rays find their source or origin in the sun, but the rays in the sun came into the existence at the same time. Of course, for God, that's eternal. Um, the rays of the sun are not after, but rather the rays are fundamental to what it means to be the sun. To be the sun is to shine and to emit rays. The analogy of course, like all analogies, breaks down, especially since, again, the Trinity is eternal. So the stress here is ultimately that you can't have one without the other, right? Um, who God is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally. And just as the Son always has its rays, so the Father always has the Son and Holy Spirit. And Athanasius also uses this with the idea of Jesus as the word or the logos, right? But we're going to discuss that later on. Um, the primary point here is that the father is eternally the father and the son is eternally the son and the Holy Spirit is eternally the Holy Spirit. Um, let me see. So much of this will be further discussed. As I said later, let's go ahead and move into biblical support of God, the father. So looking at the biblical support, uh, the biblical support, for God as Father is really straightforward. The claim of God as the Father of Jesus is also straightforward. Now, the claim that God is our Father, uh, dependent upon the reality of union with Christ, is not popular, but it's biblical, and that will be one of our application points. And so I'm just going to digress from there. So this... Um, the basis for the claims of Nicaea is found in the New Testament. God is referred to as Father, and that can be found in all the Gospels. Um, 
And in the Gospels, the usage of God the Father is nearly exclusive to Jesus' speech. Uh, there are exceptions, such as John 1, 14 and 18, which is the prologue, where John is speaking about the Father and Son, um, and thus he's speaking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. But then there's also 8.41 and 14.8. Now, when Jesus speaks about the Father, we predominantly see him using personal pronouns, my Father and your Father's. Um, and the only time he seems to use the possessive plural of our Father, where there's that union of this is both of our fathers, um, is the Lord's Prayer when he's teaching his disciples how to address the Father. Um, it's presented that when we survey how God uses my Father versus your Father, there's this distinction between um, Jesus as God's Son and how the disciples are to relate to God the Father. Now, whenever Jesus speaks of God, he uses the term Abba, uh, which has been abused by many in various sermons to mean like some type of baby talk for daddy, God, dada. Um, but the evidence suggests that it's really just a simple Aramaic designation for father used by adults and children. However, it is true that the term was not used in Jewish prayers directed towards God. Regardless, Jesus um, exclusively uses this term um, until we get to Paul, who notes that it is by the spirit that we can call God the father. Now, whenever we're talking about Nicaea and what they're expressing, the best way to discuss this is by looking at the relationship of the Father and the Son, which means focusing on Jesus, because that's where progressive revelation comes in. Um, so while we have all four Gospels, where they have discussions on the reality of the Father and the Son, we'll focus our attention on the Gospel of John, because the intimacy between the Father and the Son is more pronounced than in the other Gospels. Um, so John's Gospel we see Jesus identifying God as Father over a hundred times, and Jesus as being God's Son over 25 times. Um, Jesus, as the Son of God, um, divine sonship can touch on messianic expectations in the role of the Messiah and so forth, but there are also expansions of this in John's Gospel, um, where in John's Gospel we find the expression of the Father's love for the Son in many texts, such as uh, John 3.35, and then we find the unity of God and will, mind, and mutual indwelling, in John 10.30, I and the Father are one, uh, which was a modalistic proof text, but it just expresses, again, the unity of God, um, which they rightly use in terms of unity, but then they stressed it too far, right? And completely um, eliminate distinctions that are proper to Scripture. Um, but we see throughout the Gospel that the Son knows and sees the Father in an intimate manner where the Son reflects the activity of the Father, and that's John five nineteen through twenty, uh, John eight twenty eight six forty, um, and so on. And of course, the beginning of John's Gospel sets this precedent for the eternality of the Son and the Father, and noting that the Son is in the Father's bosom and has a unique relationship with the Father. And that's John, really John one one through John one eighteen, but John one eighteen here is in mind in particular. Um, so the mutual indwelling of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit can be demonstrated in texts like John 14, uh, particularly with the Father and Son in John 10, 38, where he says that um, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So there's that mutual indwelling, uh, which is really a, a difficult concept to grasp, um, but I digress. Um, when Jesus was a child, before his baptism, and there's that public declaration of the Father to the Son, saying that this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we see Jesus as a child saying to Mary and Joseph, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house in Luke 2.49? And so there's this awareness 
right out the gate that Jesus is the Son. Um, and then before his death, he also points back to this eternal reality uh, of this relationship with the Father. He says, um, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that's John 17, 5. Now, in some texts, we find um, Jesus' claim actually riles up the people of his day because of the implications. Um, just as we said, to have a son is to have that nature um, and the authority, especially. Um, we see this with Jesus and John 5 and the healing of the man on the Sabbath. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working, in verse 17. Now, for the Jews in Jesus' day, it was always a reality that God works even on the Sabbath because he upholds the universe and has providence. And he providentially upholds the universe and cares for the world. So God's working on the Sabbath is the exception, if you will, to the law out of necessity of God's nature. So when Jesus calls himself, um, calls God, his father, he's making himself equal to God by claiming the same authority. And this doesn't escape his opposition. In fact, calling God his own father, Jesus was making himself equal to God is present in the text in 518. So this dynamic of the intimate relationship between the father and the son is really hard to miss. And while we could go on discussing it, much of this really will focus on divine sonship, which was the major point of contention, right? Because like I said, father... Um, God the Father, God the Creator, were really um, aspects that um, did have opposition, such as with Gnostics, but for the most part was presupposed within the context of Judaism and Arianism, because what the discussion centered around was, well, who is Jesus in relation to this one God the Father, right? Um, so we're going to save that for a later time. So what are our applications here? Well, our applications are going to be two um, in nature. There can be um, children of God and modalism, and they should be fairly brief. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, the first application point is very simple. In our modern evangelical context, we find this notion that everyone is by nature a child of God. Uh, this idea stems from God as creator, but the scriptures tells us that those who are in the world and under the reign of sin and not united to Christ are children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. And in fact, Ephesians 2 makes a big distinction and purposely sets up that you were a child of wrath, but God is rich in mercy. Um, and so there's that clear distinction, that line in the sand. Uh, we are not children of God because God is creator, but rather we are creatures of God because God is creator. That's an important distinction because adoption is a blessed um, one of the spiritual blessings of all the spiritual blessings found in Christ that is applied only to those who are in Christ. It is a blessing for believers only to be called children of God. So the scriptures teach that you are not a child of the Father unless you are united in Christ and given the blessing of adoption. Uh, you can see this in uh, even John 8, 42, 47, when he's speaking to his contemporaries. He says, if God were your father, you would love me for I am from God and now I am here. I have not come to my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. So according to Jesus, who is the father of those who do not love Jesus and thus by extension, not the father? If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the father. So one of the benefits, again, of Christ's work is adoption. It's a glorious reality of Christ's work on our behalf. Uh, where we are brought into God's family. And you see this in Ephesians 1, 5, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and Romans 8, uh, wherein we can now cry out, Father to God, because we have 
the Holy Spirit because of Christ's work. So because of Christ, we are no longer strangers, aliens, or enemies, but rather we are sons, heirs, children, inheritors of the blessings of God. And Romans 8.17 notes that we are co-heirs with Christ and heirs of God who will share in Christ's glory. And of course, John 1.12-13 makes this abundantly clear. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So that's straightforward, very um, strong reality that needs to be recognized that we are not all children of God. We are all creatures of God, but only those who are united to Christ are children of God. So our second point is modalism. Modalism is alive and well in the church today. Um, A lot of people don't see a problem with it. It's being taught by some individuals like Stephen Furtick, and T.D. Jakes, um, among many others. Um, But the church, as we noted here and prior, has historically, as a whole, have recognized modalism as a dangerous, damnable heresy uh, because it undermines the very nature of God and makes incoherent God's revelation. Um, Whenever we think about how we go through the text, you cannot go through the text and come out a modalist. If you're being honest with the text, you just cannot. And so this general consensus should be quite telling for us. Um, While our modern context wants to say, well, no, it's not really that big of a deal. It was and is a big deal for many reasons. And we're going to look at some of those issues here in a second. But that needs to be stressed that whenever someone tries to downplay that, well, the church as a whole historically has always, always denounced modalism as a heresy and one that separates you from the faith once delivered. Um, and so there is a place for parting ways with individuals who who make the claim of modalism. You don't have anything to do with them. Uh, we talked about how First John is very firm on uh, the idea of um, supporting teachers who teach heresy. Um, so that's that's an important detail. This is not a light matter. So... Um, if it's not a minor detail, how serious is the issue? Well, first, it destroys the love of God. We talked about this previously in this particular episode, how how love has a relational aspect inherently a part of it. And so if God is self-existent outside of creation before anything was created, but God is also love and he has nothing to create, then he is incomplete. And thus, whenever he creates the world and loves us, then all of a sudden his love is dependent upon us as an object to love. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, so there needs to be this eternal relational love because of the very nature of love, which of course is derivative from God's very nature. Um, and that can only be shared amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's love for the Son is expressed in Scripture over and over and over again. But in modalism, it becomes fictional. Um, it becomes incoherent as revelation. If the Father becomes the Son, then all of these texts about the Father loving the Son become arbitrary or bizarre. I love myself, who I sent myself for you, becomes very bizarre. If you start replacing this idea of um, where two persons are being spoken of in Scripture with one person, then you end up having this incoherent revelation and God revealing himself as love, especially in relationship between the Father and the Son, becomes a superficial display of love um, that is really just a 
facade. It's not legitimate. It's just a demonstration which lacks weight. Um, Additionally, modalism destroys the Father's glorification of the Son and the Spirit's glorification of Christ. Um, The Son is said to have shared glory with the Father prior to creation, John 17, 5. Um, Glorify me, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world existed does not make sense if it is just the Father speaking to himself as the Son. Um, And so this isn't a mere display of how we are to relate to the Father, as some would say. Um, they, They, modalists will claim that this is how we are to relate to the Father. But we had no eternal glory, nor did we share in the glory of God until we are united with Christ and Christ's glorification. And then even then, ontologically, we are not glorious as God is before the existence of the world. Unless you want to start teaching uh, another heresy, that is the pre-existence of souls. Um, But I digress there. Um, With all this said, not only this, but modalism destroys or makes weak the love of the world in regards to the plan of redemption. So what I mean by this is if we look at John 3.16... So in this way, God loved the world that he sent his only son. So the weight is firstly on God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son as a sacrifice for the world, right? Um, For starters, that weight of the father's love for the son that really amplifies the text that God sent his only begotten son um, really just kind of disappears in modalism because it's really saying that God came into the mode of the son and sent himself um, to save the world. And so this love for the world is cheapened. And not only that, but it's an insult to the father's love of the eternal son. Um, It's kind of like saying, I'm just going to reject the love you had for the world and the love you had for the son and the weight of this text that you love the world so much that you sent your own son that really the text loses its, its thrust. It loses its, its point, its, its entire point. Um, further, modalism undermines the work of the Son who sought to do the will of the Father and was obedient to the Father um, as man, as the God-man, unto death and was exalted by the Father, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Whenever we read Philippians uh, with the Christological passage in 2, 1 through 11, and you see this vindication of Christ and being exalted, and, and therefore the Father lifted him up and seated him next to him, on the throne, none of that is coherent if the Father just became the Son and then the Son becomes the Holy Spirit. Um, and so the coherency and clear meaning of Scripture as a whole just falls apart. Jesus becomes a madman who actually does pray to himself in the garden. Um, and we find that too. We find that charge from people who don't think through uh, Christian theology much, and they'll say, well, you know, was Jesus just praying to himself in the garden? Well, the modalist has to say yes. Or what they say, they say yes but it was an example for us. And so this, this interaction between the father and the son in the garden loses all of its weight because that's a personal relationship. Yeah, it's an example of the deep prayer we can have, but there's first and foremost a relationship happening in that prayer that modalism just destroys. And really this is the case with most all of Jesus' prayers. Um, while you can say, yeah, they're an example, they, they fundamentally crumble and make little sense. For example, whenever we see... In John 14, 15 through 17, really just the text that um, really makes modalism very difficult. We read, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father. So Jesus is going to ask the Father. And he, the Father, will give you another helper to be with you forever, 
even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all mentioned as distinct persons in this text. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father. And that argument that this is an example of prayer doesn't make sense because he's not praying here. He's telling the disciples that he's going to ask the Father for the Father to send another helper to be with you, and that's the Holy Spirit. Um, But numerous texts where the three persons are presented at once really just become a mess, Um, such as the Father speaking to the disciples during the Son's transfiguration or the baptism of Jesus, which was heavily cited by the early church fathers on this point, was that you have Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan, and you have the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and then you have the Father speaking, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, all three persons present in that singular text, and then John 14, and then, of course, the whole um, prologue of John with John 1, 1 through 18, especially 18, it becomes a major issue. And so the church, for good reason, has always said that modalism is a serious error that radically impacts the knowability of God via revelation and flips that revelation on itself. Why does it radically impact the knowability of God? Because God has been revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus revealed himself as Son in relationship to the Father, as we demonstrated before. And modalism destroys that relationship. It destroys the knowability of God, especially whenever we consider the love of God. And whenever we read texts like, the Father loves the Son, then all of a sudden those texts are completely arbitrary and become problematic. Um, so modalism is a serious error, and I want to pull up some text real quick. And really, this all just boils down to, contrary to modalism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not mere titles or different modes for the existence of Jesus or God or however they articulate that, because sometimes it differs. But the Bible continuously shows that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. The Father sends the Son, 1 John 4.4. 4. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, while Jesus is baptized, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, John 3, 35. The Father and the Son glorify one another, John 17, 4 through 5. And the Spirit glorifies the Son, John 16, 14. And Jesus at the right hand of the Father in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And the Father and the Son count as two witnesses in John 5, 31 through 17. And it really just goes on and on. And just to kind of drive the point home, let's look at a few more texts. Um, so Matthew three sixteen, as I said, when Jesus was baptized, he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son. Uh, and then John fourteen twenty six, And these things I have spoken to you that while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So I am still with you, but the helper will teach you all things whom the Father will send in my name. Um, Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Um, Titus 3, 6, But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us according to mercy by the washing of regenerate and re- uh, regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Salvation is a Trinitarian work. 
First um, Peter one two to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood again Trinitarian work of salvation Hebrews nine fourteen but how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God um, again I I don't believe that you can read through um, the scriptures and come out a modalist. Um, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is hard, but we cannot reduce who God is to our finite understanding and rip apart his revelation in doing so. So that's going to wrap up this particular episode on the father. And I hope it was beneficial in some shape or form. And it, it really is a hard topic and I'll, I'll be straight with you. Sometimes whenever I'm talking about this, uh, kind of stuff. I'm worried about whether or not I'm speaking uh, coherently and correctly and not accidentally saying something wrong or unbiblical or unglorifying to God. Um, and so that's that. I hope it's beneficial and God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.